Christchurch, New Malden, 1st of December 2019, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Looking to the Coming of Jesus, Isaiah. Well, I wonder whether you're one of those people who, when Christmas is over for another year, tend to remember its positives, tend to remember the bits that you really love about it, being with those people that you love, enjoying the special food and drink, the parties, the presents, perhaps seeing children or maybe grandchildren getting really excited about it. I wonder if those are the memories that you tend to carry forward in the new year. But there is another side to Christmas as well, isn't there? One that we're only too aware of normally around this time of year in Advent. There's the mad rush of preparation to try and get it all done. Buying those presents, particularly for those annoying, frustrating people who you've got to get something for, but you don't know quite what it should be in the freezing cold weather. Sending all of those cards and the constant worry about whether you're going to get everything done. Christmas actually is a real mixture of positive and negative, isn't it? But understandably, and probably rightly, certainly once it's all over, we tend to remember those bits of it that are positive. And we do much the same with the Christmas story. Christmas story is a wonderful, joyful story that we celebrate each year, isn't it? A truly fabulous story that God loved the world so much that he came into that world in Jesus as a tiny little baby so that we could be saved, so that we could be rescued and restored to him. And it's so appropriate that we celebrate much of this story with lights, whether in candle form or in electric form, because, of course, Christmas is all about God's light coming into the darkness in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's very easy and completely understandable to focus purely upon the light rather than reflecting at all on the darkness that that light came into. Reflecting on the light is positive and hopeful, isn't it? While focus on the darkness can seem the very opposite. But of course, we can't really understand and appreciate the light unless we first understand the darkness that that light came into. And that's where the prophet Isaiah can really help us. If you ask most Christians to cite one verse in Isaiah, it will probably be this one. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the, shadow, the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Now, the reason we're able to remember it so well is because it's so often used at carol services. We'll be using it, I'm sure, in our carols by candlelight service in a few weeks' time. And that particular passage, Isaiah chapter 9, usually 1 to 7, is so good at setting the scene for the readings that then follow in carol services, usually from Matthew and Luke's accounts of the Christmas story. But one of the paybacks from taking the whole of Isaiah seriously, is that we don't just learn about the light, but we learn more about the darkness that made that light shine so brightly. And when we engage with Isaiah and his message, and it was reflected in both of our Bible readings earlier, 
we see a lot more of why that light was so desperately needed. You see, Isaiah isn't just the great prophet of God's light. He's the great prophet of God's darkness as well. Isaiah lived around 700 years before Jesus, and he lived within Jerusalem. Because of the access that he had to the kings of Judah, some have suggested that he was a nobleman rather than a commoner, but that's just guesswork. What we do know is about the way that Isaiah was called. He was in the temple, and he has this amazing vision in chapter 6 of his prophecy of God's holiness, a vision that then makes him see so much more clearly than he did before his and his people's sinfulness. And Isaiah said these famous words, which are to say are in chapter 6 of his prophecy. Woe to me, he said, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah's lips, his sinful lips, were then cleansed by a seraph who touches them with a burning coal to take his sin away, and he's then commissioned to take God's message to his people. And the message that Isaiah is commissioned to take is a very strange one. Because Isaiah is told this by God, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people, God says, calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. It is an extremely odd and strange and perplexing message, isn't it? That's why so many commentators have wanted to wriggle around and say it can't really mean what it's saying, it must mean something else. But the words are absolutely clear and repeated just in case we are in doubt about them. Isaiah is commissioned by God to actually close off his people from his message. Isaiah is commissioned by God to make their ears dull and close their eyes. And why is he commanded to do that? Because otherwise they might see with their ears, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's extremely odd, because Israel turning to God and being healed is precisely what we would have imagined God wanted. And it gets worse. Isaiah asks how long he has to do this, and God answers, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. That's what the words say. And it's clear that whatever more he might have been, Isaiah was firstly a prophet of God's judgment. And very severe judgment, because what he pronounced was that God was going to deliberately shut off his chosen people from his healing power. Israel's sin, it seems, had got so bad that God was actually going to shut her up within that state of sin. And this is where we get the emphasis within Isaiah upon darkness. And it was within both of our readings this morning. In chapter 5, the first reading that Carol brought to us, 
We heard Isaiah saying, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And as part of God's judgment upon that, this state of darkness was confirmed. As the prophet said, If one looks at the land, he'll see darkness and distress. Even the light, even the sun, will be darkened by the clouds. We see something similar at the end of chapter 8. As Isaiah says, distressed and hungry, they'll roam through the land. When they're famished, they'll become enraged and look upwards and will curse their king and their God. They will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. So darkness is a pretty clear theme. God's people experiencing his judgment through being left alone to stumble around in the dark, seemingly without his guiding presence. And for those of you who've been here recently at this service, as we've gone through Paul's letter to the Romans, there is a certain similarity with the mysterious role that Paul gives to the law in chapter 7 of that letter. Being given to deliberately shut Israel up under sin. God's plan, his mysterious plan, involved, it seems, deliberately allowing darkness to come upon his chosen people and keep them in that state of sin. Part of that darkness was foreign invasion. The pagan Assyrians who came in Isaiah's time, who took control, who annexed the northern part of Israel, they also surrounded Jerusalem and looked for a time as though they could capture that as well. And God's darkness also comes in the Davidic kings, those who were meant to live by faith in God's promises and rule with justice and righteousness, doing the precise opposite. That's part of the darkness that comes upon Judah at the time of Isaiah. Kings like Ahaz, who were from the Davidic line, being utterly faithless towards God and ruling in an oppressive manner. And for God's people, surrounded by all of this darkness, experiencing distress and seemingly cut off from God forever, it must have seemed totally hopeless. And it does very often seem like that when we go through our own personal times of darkness, doesn't it? All of us go through times of distress and desolation, times when God seems very distant and, frankly, completely indifferent to what's happening. We can experience this in personal terms when things go wrong in our lives. We can also uh, be tempted to think about this on a wider level as well, especially if things are happening within our country or within our world that we're unhappy with. We can look at the earth and we can see only distress or overwhelmingly distress and darkness and fearful gloom, to use Isaiah's words, and we can wonder literally what on earth God is up to. But even this message about darkness from Isaiah can help us here. Because the message from Isaiah, even before we come to the sections on light, is that the darkness and the distress is all part of God's plan. Now, we might 
be, when we first hear that, think, well, that doesn't help us much. But actually, it's much better than the alternative. The alternative is that it's just random or meaningless. That it's the result of a God who's simply not involved, a God who is indifferent, a God who is distant and not particularly implementing any plan for his salvation of the world. A God who's negligent. But actually Isaiah says the opposite. Isaiah says that the distress and the gloom and the darkness, it's actually, whatever it looks like, all part of God's plan. It's all part of a God whom, whatever it might look like, knows completely what he's doing. Because what Isaiah shows us is that the darkness that God allowed to come upon his people, it was a vital preparation for the light. God's calling of a people who turned out to be just as sinful as the rest of the world, it wasn't a mistake. It was the way in which all of that sin in the world could be drawn onto his chosen people Israel and then passed on to that perfect Davidic king that God sent, who, as later sections of Isaiah show, combined that royal status with being the servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Why did that happen? It was precisely so that God's blessings could then flow beyond his chosen people, who were now freed from sin, to everyone within the entire world. And that's where this famous passage that we're used to hearing at Christmas time from Isaiah chapter 9, that's where it gains its significance. That's where all of these passages that surround it, which talk about the darkness that God brings, can help us to understand more clearly the light within it. And maybe you'd like to turn, if you haven't got it in front of you, to that page 693. Isaiah chapter 9, because let's look at those famous verses in the light of everything that we've just seen that surrounds them. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 on page 693. It's very significant where it starts. It starts in those very northern territories of Israel that suffered the humiliation of being the very first parts of the land of Israel to be taken over. This happened during the time when Isaiah was a prophet, when the Assyrians came and annexed the northern territories of Israel. And what does Isaiah say? He says that Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee of the Gentiles, this territory that was taken over even bore the name of the Gentiles for that reason. Isaiah has this vision of the people within those very territories who were so used to walking in darkness, were the first people of Israel really to enter into that darkness of captivity. Those would be the very same people who would in the future see a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, Isaiah says, a light has dawned. And rather than the land being diminished as it was in Isaiah's day, as foreign powers constantly came and took more bits of territory and reduced it and reduced it and reduced it. This vision that Isaiah has of the future is of the very opposite. It shows that actually God 
will have enlarged the nation and increased the people's joy. Because just like in the days of old when God defeated Israel's enemies, such as the Midianites, their oppression would have ended. And the reason why all this would have happened, it was because in place of the weak and faithless Davidic kings of Isaiah's day, people like King Ahaz and even Hezekiah, God had sent the real thing. God had sent a son who would be the perfect king and even the embodiment of God himself. God had sent this king to reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, not for a short temporary period, but forever. And a king that would establish that kingdom of perfect justice and righteousness. And of course, we see all of this in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? Yes, we see this child king born in Bethlehem, down in the south. That was to fulfill what God spoke through a prophet around the same time as Isaiah called Micah, and we'll be hearing about that next week. But fairly early on in Jesus' ministry, or very much at the start of Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus revealing God's light, firstly in those northern regions of Israel that Isaiah spoke about. Jesus' ministry begins, doesn't it, in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where the ministry of Jesus first began, in those lowly, humbled, northern fishing towns. That's where Jesus' healings and his exorcisms and his other miracles and his teaching all began fulfilling this ancient prophecy of Isaiah. And of course, Jesus goes on to fulfill the rest of what Isaiah is speaking about in that passage that we had read. He follows that inauguration of his ministry up in Galilee by travelling south to Jerusalem and decisively defeating Israel's real enemy in the power of that sin and evil, which, if she could but know it, was her greatest oppressor. And why? So that everyone, even those pagans who had formerly been seen simply as her oppressors, could then be incorporated within God's perfect kingdom and become part of God's eternal reign of justice and righteousness. So this Advent 2019, as we approach yet another Christmas, helped by the prophet Isaiah, Let's not just focus on the light that came in Jesus Christ, the perfect son of David, but let's also focus on the darkness that Isaiah also has so much to tell us about. The darkness that might have looked like a sign of God's absence and indifference, but which was in reality all part of his mysterious but very deliberate plan for revealing that light so that sin could be defeated once and for all, and so that everyone, not just God's existing people, but everyone could belong to him. All of that darkness, seemingly so random and pointless, was in reality part of God's plan for the revelation of his most perfect light. And perhaps, just like when we looked at Romans 7 a few weeks ago, it can help us to have greater confidence 
in what God is up to at the time when darkness in our own lives seems overwhelming. It can very often feel in our lives that God is conspicuous by his absence, can't it? But that's actually never the case. Even when God appears to hide his face from us, he's always working to a purpose. And the purpose that God is working to remains the same. The purpose of his perfect justice and righteousness being advanced over the earth. Everything that God allows to happen is actually playing some sort of role. Sometimes fairly obviously, and it's easy to rejoice at those moments, sometimes in a way that leaves us deeply perplexed and saddened. But the witness of Isaiah is that even the darkness that God allows to come is part of his plan for revealing his perfect light. And so let's remember that during this Advent. It's tough and it's difficult for us to believe, but actually it can be deeply encouraging to us that even the darkness that God allows to happen within our personal lives, even the darkness that God allows within our nation, even the darkness that God allows to happen within the world that so often looks so senseless and unfair, is actually all part of a God who isn't indifferent, who isn't distant and uninvolved, but a God who is active. And a God who is active in revealing his perfect light. Let's remember that this Advent. Let's have confidence in God. That however things look, God is working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And let's remember about the important role of the darkness, the mysterious role of the darkness when we hear once again that famous verse, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Let's pray. Father God, we bring before you the darkness the darkness perhaps that has touched our lives, the darkness that certainly touches the lives of our nation and the world, and perhaps those that we love. Lord God, it can seem so random and pointless. It can seem very often that you're simply indifferent to what's going on rather than being actively involved. But Father God, would you help us to have such faith in you that we recognise that even the darkness is all part of your plan. And we thank you for the truths of Christmas, the truth that you sent your light into this world in your Son, Jesus Christ. And would you help us to be witnesses to the light and to have faith in your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.